On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest CMS, Quality Safety and Oversight Memo regarding the vaccine mandate, and how surveys will be changing in the future, update information about the No Surprises Act, and in our focus segment, discuss how to remain compliant with your pharmaceutical services, and interview John Karwaski, a pharmacist who discusses drug diversion. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 150 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for January 23rd, 2022. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So, so we had to add that that little note there about always changing and, and paying attention to the date of our recording because things change so rapidly. I know. We I, make you know sure I threw you for a loop, didn't I, with that uh, extra <laughs> verbiage? Yeah. So uh, it makes sense. It does. Does indeed. And, you know, I think uh, even when we were talking about some of the most recent topics, like mm-hmm. uh, for three episodes in a row, we've been talking about the the new QSO because there literally are three QSOs out there on this. We're going to talk about that in a minute, how, how unusual that is in this yeah. particular environment. But, uh, you know, please recognize that uh, you probably want to keep current with these episodes. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people kind of go backwards, which is all right, but yeah. just don't assume that an older episode has more current information, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and Sue, we reached another milestone. This is episode 150. Yep. Can't believe, you know, in our four, uh, fifth year, we're starting our fifth mm-hmm. year, so we got four years behind us. That's uh, quite a number of episodes per year. It's, uh, almost uh, 40 uh, episodes a year that we've been doing. Seems yep. like we've been kind of busy. We have been, and we're trying to get caught up. I think we are mm-hmm. getting caught up. We kind of, a lot of things have been going on, so we've been kind of yeah. had a hard time keeping up with everything. And we are also trying to get Back to the staff edition. So we're going to be recording one today as well. Right, right. So And it'll be on the same topic, mm-hmm. uh, just much more condensed and, and, yeah. and information that's more applicable for uh, staff people. For So for those of you that have forgotten or uh, uh, have not been following us since we uh, started the, the staff editions, and I think it was in the spring, uh, the staff edition is meant to be a, a relatively succinct, like 15 to 20 
25 minute uh, episode, which is useful for your staff. So you can use it either as a, uh, a staff in service, or you can encourage your staff to listen to it on the way into work in the morning or on the way home. Uh, but it's meant to be uh, something that kind of supplements this. It's not as detailed and it's uh, a little bit more, you know, geared to the staff people as opposed to the people that are uh, making all these difficult decisions that you have to make on a daily basis or in management positions. Uh, so uh, we're going to keep that up a little bit. Um, and Sue, we're, you know, we're going to talk at the uh, end here in part three about uh, upcoming episodes and some of the interesting topics that we have planned in the future. And, you know, another interesting thing is that if you're a patron member or uh, if you've gone through one of our boot camps, you, uh, uh, you can join us on Saturday mornings for our drop-in sessions at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. That's about where it is, uh, about the, the time we've been using for about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get great feedback from our uh, patron members about what the episodes uh, you know, what to include in our episodes. Yeah. So some of the content that we've been talking about are coming from that. And, uh, we just had one last Saturday, yesterday, where we, uh, it's interesting. They're, again, asking about, um, you know, more information on um, succession planning. Yes. Uh, so that clearly, I mean, it's something that we've been predicting has been an issue, but it's interesting to see the patrons coming back mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. emphasizing that. So. Yeah. And if anybody out there has some ideas for things they'd like to see either in our regular episodes or in our staff um, edition, you know, feel free to, to send us a note. Right, at info at ASCPodcast.com. So let's uh, go on to the news. And it seems like the last three episodes, we've been saying the same thing. Um, yet another CMS quality safety and oversight memoranda. Three memoranda with the exact same name with different QSO numbers uh, in, uh, on the, uh, the CMS website. And we will give a link to it so that you can go there if you are crazy enough to want to read this in detail. <laughs> uh, we will give you a summary of it. But basically yeah. what's happened is that the original memoranda, which was from uh, 2021, in December mm-hmm. of 2021, uh, was uh, meant to introduce the, the, the vaccine mandate. And then, of course, the um, there were court cases that put it on hold in some states. And then after the Supreme Court decision allowed it, the mandate to move forward in almost all states, well, in all states all except states Texas, mm-hmm. uh, they issued another memoranda to provide a, a, a change date for that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, just this last week, uh, Texas's mandate is moving forward. So yeah. they issued a third uh, memorandum, which is QSO-22-11-all, uh, which uh, provided uh, revised deadlines for Texas. So we don't have to go into a lot of detail about this other than to mention that all of the deadlines that we've talked about previously are still in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only thing that we need to mention is that the date of this memo was uh, January 20th, 2022, and Texas's deadlines have been extended to that point. So 30 days after 120, which I think is going to be February uh, 19th, uh, everybody has to have that first vaccine, or uh, if it's the Johnson & Johnson, you have to have the vaccine done by that point. Mm-hmm. And if you are requesting a religious or a uh, medical exemption, you have to have that uh, exemption request in by that day, 30 days from uh, from January 20th. And then within 60 days of January 20th, I'm sorry, I didn't do the math on that, but mm-hmm. 60 days from January 20th, uh, you have to have that second vaccine done. And the organization will have had to have processed and made a decision on whether to grant the exemption for either religious or medical exemptions. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, yeah. if you're in a state that has a different rule, the state that's more restrictive, then you have to follow that state's rule. New York State, for instance, does not allow uh, religious exemptions. Correct. 
I do want to point something out. We talked about this quite a bit on the uh, the patron discussion on mm-hmm. Saturday, is that it is highly unusual that CMS chose to change the actual conditions for coverage to mm-hmm. include this discussion about COVID-19. Yeah. And think about the ramifications of this. As somebody uh, mentioned uh, uh, on Saturday, um, you know, it took 20 years to get the first set of revisions to the conditions for coverage. And then, you know, within a period of about five years, a whole bunch of changes came. Uh, But all of those were much more global. Here, Mm -hmm. we actually have a condition for coverage that is specific to COVID-19, which I happen to feel is, uh, and by the way, the other interesting thing about it is if you read the content of this COVID-19, it's actually, it's it's embedded in the infection control condition for coverage. And it's actually longer than all of the rest of the the, uh, information information in mm-hmm. the infection control section. Uh, so it's kind of unbelievable that they've spent that much paper mm-hmm. to discuss something that is so very specific. Uh, personally, yeah. I think it would have been better if they had gone in and talked more about uh, communicable diseases because this sets a, a standard that let's say mm-hmm. we have COVID-22, heaven forbid, mm-hmm. um, you know, then then you're going to have to update the conditions for coverage and add another section for, uh, you know, for the new variant. I, I think that it's, uh, it's going to be challenging for us in the future. And of course, this requires us now as surveyors to, you know, survey based upon the condition for coverage and mm-hmm. the interpretive guidelines. That's taking time away from everything else you're doing because this is not going to be a quick, easy process, at least for larger centers, I would think. So yeah, um, it, it's just, it's kind of surprising to me. Well, you're going to be spending a lot of time making sure your documentation follows the standards mm-hmm. and, and the surveyors are going to survey based upon mm-hmm. it. So in the uh, QSOs that we've referenced here, and I think what I'll try to do, Sue, is I'll try to include all the previous QSOs also and, and specify which one refers to which states. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, make sure your policies and procedures are well written, including all of those things we talked about in episode 140. And be prepared for a surveyor. And and myself as a surveyor and the other three surveyors on my team uh, who have looked at it really feel that this is going to take between an hour and two hours of our time on survey, uh, depending upon how many – you know, exemptions were granted in your organization. If you didn't have any exemptions, you know, maybe you won't uh, be so long. But we have to read an awful lot of policies in order to to determine that you're in compliance. So, Sue, you did a little bit of research. Now, I, I'm waiting for um, a session. Uh, we're going to have a educational program soon for AAAC surveyors. Once I have that uh, training, you know, I'll know more about it and we'll talk about it. Uh, but you did a little bit of research and found that uh, Joint Commission has already issued a discussion as to what they're going to be looking for. So let's talk a little bit about Joint Commission's guidance on, on how they will survey for mm-hmm. vaccine compliance. All right. So beginning January 27th, the Joint Commission is going to begin surveying to the COVID-19 healthcare staff vaccination interim final rule published by CMS. And again, this is regarding deemed status surveys for now. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that it's also going to be including accreditation surveys, but for now, right we're now really they're talking saying largely deemed. deemed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this, as you said, it applies to all deemed status organizations that are using Joint Commission. And I'm assuming it's it's very similar to HHC, but um, you'll give more details on that later. Right. So as of January 13th, the 24 states that were not previously subject to the omnibus healthcare staff vaccination rule now are. They will need to demonstrate compliance with a phased-in approach with full compliance by April 14th, 2022. So here's a list of the documents that the surveyors will expect to see. The overall vaccination rates of staff, excluding exempted staff. A list of all staff identifying those hired in the past 60 days, 
including positions and titles, including their vaccination status, and all policies regarding healthcare staff vaccinations. And then they go on to talk about what the um, policies um, should entail. So the organizations must prepare to provide, at a minimum, policies and procedures that include the following. A process for tracking and securely documenting the COVID-19 vaccination status of all staff. A process for tracking and securely documenting the COVID-19 vaccination status of any staff who have obtained any booster doses as recommended by the CDC. A process by which the staff may request an exemption from the staff COVID-19 vaccination requirements based on an applicable federal law. And and state law. Yeah, following your state law as well. A process for tracking and securely documenting information provided by those staff who have requested and for whom the organization has granted an exemption from the staff COVID-19 vaccination requirements um, based on recognized clinical contraindications or applicable federal or state laws. And again, that's something that you're really going to have to pay attention to and and make sure. That you've integrated the federal and state regulations. Mm -hmm. And by the way, even local regulations, I would imagine, would be involved in some, you know, bigger uh, metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. Um, A process for ensuring that all documentation that confirms recognized clinical contraindications to COVID-19 vaccines um, supports staff requests for medical exemptions from vaccination has been signed and dated by a licensed practitioner who is not the individual requesting the exemption, which makes sense, and who is acting within the respective scope of practice. All information specifying which of the authorized COVID-19 vaccines are clinically contraindicated for the staff member to receive, which I know, John, you've talked about before. You just can't make a a general statement. There has to be specifics there. The recognized clinical reasons for the contraindications, a statement by the authenticating practitioner recommending that the staff member be exempted from the organization's vaccine requirements based on the recognized clinical contraindications. And there is a note here, the surveyors will only evaluate that the documentation is complete. They're not going to try to decide, you know, the appropriateness of the clinical contraindications. But but there needs to be a process in place and an assurance. So I think one of the concerns I have looking at this yeah. is that people are just going to accept, centers are just going to accept the application without evaluating it. Now, mm-hmm. surveyors are not going to evaluate it, but they want to know that somebody in the organization did evaluate it yeah. and checked it against federal and state regulations and, and the, the standards of care. Would you recommend it going through the board, going through the copy, going through both? I think we need to see the board authorizing an individual within the organization to mm-hmm. make those decisions on behalf of the board. Yeah, and approving these policies that, that you're coming up with. Um, and a process for ensuring the tracking and securing documentation of the vaccination status for staff um, for whom COVID-19 vaccination must be temporarily delayed as recommended by the CDC due to clinical precautions and considerations, um, including but not limited to individuals with acute illness secondary to COVID-19 and individuals who have received monoclonal antibodies or convalescent plasma for COVID-19 treatment. Um, Contingency plans for staff who are not fully vaccinated for COVID-19. Yeah, that last one we need to remember too, because that's something we probably all haven't thought about, Mm -hmm. is what do we do if we cannot um, continue to staff the organization because so many people have uh, opted out of it, or you don't have fully vaccinated people. Um, And I I think, Sue, uh, you know, my concern is not so much now because I think, you know, everybody's going to be forced to have people vaccinated, and Mm -hmm. therefore you probably don't need to implement a contingency plan 
uh, at least at this point. But if they redefine in the future, which we mm-hmm. expect them to, and, and indeed uh, the state of New York has already uh, put together a plan to redefine yeah. what fully vaccinated means, yeah. um, that, that in the future you might find yourself be switching from fully vaccinated to non-vaccinated mm-hmm. because people will Maybe be have required to have, to have that booster. Yeah. yeah, But also, though, people that do get that medical or religious exemption, if it's allowed in your state, they – you will have to have contingency plans for how do they keep working. Correct, correct. Well, and uh, accommodations need to be, as we talked about in episode mm-hmm, 149, mm-hmm. how the uh, 148, the accommodations are yes. implemented. We should point out that uh, NHSN, uh, which is part of uh, CDC, we, we know that the, the Medicare quality reporting requirements require us by August to start reporting to NHSN. So you should be starting the process now for signing up for an account with NHSN if you let yours lapse and recognize that NHSN expects you to be reporting on a weekly basis the vaccination status of all of your staff, and I would presume also uh, the booster status. Now, our reporting on the ASC side is not expected until August. But once we do start reporting, it does appear at this point that we're required to report on a weekly basis. Even if... If everybody's vaccinated and you've reported yeah. and you haven't hired somebody new, you have to still go in there and, and it, report, it seems like. I, well, luckily, we don't have to worry about this until August. So yes. hopefully we'll have some clarification. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I'm hoping by then people will recognize that weekly reporting to NHSN is just a burden. You know, NHSN, I, I can understand it in a hospital when, you know, you, you have somebody that's actually dedicated to doing this. Uh, but it's going to be our poor administrators and nurse managers out there who are going to be doing this. And you kind of have other things to do right now. So I'm hoping by Oct- by August we're going to have some more clarification yeah. on this, and maybe it will ha- won't have that same reporting frequency. Mm-hmm. But we'll keep you updated on that as we learn more. And let's go back to no surprises, Bill. Uh, we talked about the no surprises bill in episode 148, and we need to clarify some previous discussions uh, as more information has become available. Um, so one thing that you need to do when you're thinking about the no surprises bill is separate your patients into two categories. The first category is self-pay or uninsured patients, which in all cases you need to now uh, provide a good faith estimate. And you need to post a sign it uh, doesn't matter, you know, whether you have almost no self-pay or uh, or no uninsured patients. You still need to post a sign, uh, which is their notice of the right to receive a good faith estimate, and it must be po- posted in their waiting area or another location that can easily be seen by patients. And you need to provide that information to the patients prior to surgery. So a, a self-pay or uninsured patient would be individuals who are not enrolled in a group health plan or group or individual health insurance coverage, or a federal health care plan, or a federal employee's health benefits program, um, or if you're an uninsured individual, or if you're not seeking to file a claim with your group health plan, which is an option sometimes done, you know, especially for people that are going through plastic surgery. And they must be informed in writing or verbally if requested of their ability upon request or at the time of scheduling, have a good faith estimate of what their expected charges are going to be. And again, refer back to our episode 148 for more information about that. Um, And the patient does have a right to request a good faith estimate before the procedure is scheduled uh, and that the the center must provide that uh, good faith estimate within three days. Also, we did mention this in the uh, other episode, but note that if the actual bill is more than $400 higher than the good faith estimate, they have a right to initiate an independent dispute resolution process. And again, we discussed that in episode 148. The second part of the no surprises talks about out-of-network. And I think in our previous episode when we talked about this, 
this, we probably didn't make this part clear. So I just wanted to make it clear that if you are indeed also doing out-of-network billing, that recognize that when a patient receives services from an ASC, certain providers that provide services in the center or the center itself may be out-of-network. In the case of anesthesia, pathology, radiology, laboratory, and assistant surgeon services, the most those providers may bill the patient is, is the plan's in-network cost-sharing amount. These providers can't balance bill the patient and may not ask the patient to give up his or her protections not to be balance billed. But the, the center and the surgeon can uh, balance bill if they've gotten the patient's permission to do that. And good luck getting that. You're going to have to provide them this information. And if you want to balance bill them, you're going to have to ask them permission to do that. I don't think that's going to be likely, of course. Uh, so in essence, this really is prohibiting the center and the surgeon, uh, just like the other providers, prohibits them from balance billing the patient. And the center must disclose to patients information regarding federal and state if applicable balance billing protections and how to report violations. Uh, so again, this has to be included in, in that poster. Patients are never required to give up protection from balance billing. They are not required. And remember, they're not required to get care out of network. They can choose a provider or facility in their plan's network. And there is also a part of this regulation that says that uh, you should provide them, if you are an out-of-network provider, you should provide them a list of in-network providers. Mm. So when balance billing isn't allowed, which is, as we mentioned, most of the time, patients are only responsible for paying their share of the cost, which would be the co-payments, co-insurance, and deductibles uh, that they would pay if the provider or facility was in network. I'm not sure I made that any clearer. <laughs> I hope I have. <laughs> um, but as we get more information, we'll, we'll pass mm -hmm. it on to you. This is going to be a yeah. year-long process. So, Sue, one of the things that's been coming up lately, of course, is a lot of issues with regard to pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And we haven't had a pharmacy se focus segment in a while. So uh, so we thought during our part two today, we'd talk about pharmacy and, uh, uh, and also our uh, staff edition will be mm -hmm. talking about pharmacy. So let's take a short break and we'll come back and talk about one of our favorite topics, pharmaceutical services in the surgery center. Our listener patron program, also known as ASC Central, has really taken off over the past 12 months, and we are so grateful to all of our over 100 members. Our patron members help support our efforts here on the podcast and get a number of great benefits also. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is the longest-running podcast dedicated exclusively to the ASC industry. ASC Central provides members with a wealth of management tools and resources, including regular members-only Zoom sessions with John and other members to discuss relevant topics, quarterly Zoom meetings where we update patron members with important issues in the ASC industry, periodic study sessions for leaders that are planning on taking the CASC or CAPE exam, and access to a large database that includes federal regulations, interpretive guidelines, and the state regulations, checklists for administrators and nurse managers, example meeting minute templates, example policies and procedures, budgeting and financial projection tools, risk assessments and example forms, and much, much more. Members also get discounts on books written by John Gailey, ranging from $10 to $80 per book, and can even schedule a personalized mock survey with John and save over $1,000. For more information and to access this additional content, please visit ASCPodcast.com or ASC-Central.com.
Well, whenever we talk about any major issues that affect ASCs, we always want to bring it back to the CMS guidance or the conditions for coverage and the interpretive guidelines. So, so uh, the, the pharmacy section uh, mm-hmm. of the conditions for coverage is 416.48. It is a condition for coverage and it is pharmaceutical services. So Sue and I will uh, read it and we'll kind of go back and forth as we do so that uh, – uh, and again, this is uh, easy to see. We're going to put references to uh, the, the conditions for coverage and mm-hmm. the interpretive guidelines in our, our show notes. But uh, let's read it so that we know exactly what the regulations say and then we'll go into the, the interpretive guidelines. Mm-hmm. So the ASC must provide drugs and biologicals in a safe and effective manner in accordance with accepted professional practice and under the direction of an individual designated responsible for pharmaceutical services. So the standard goes like this, administration of drugs. Drugs must be prepared and administered according to established policies and acceptable standards of practice. One, adverse reactions must be reported to the physician responsible for the patient and must be documented in the record. Two, blood and blood products must be administered by only physicians or registered nurses. And three, orders given orally for drugs and biologicals must be followed by a written order signed by the prescribing physician. Now, for the rest of this section, we're going to talk about, we're going to uh, walk through the interpretive guidelines and mm-hmm. add some color to it. So I didn't uh, include anything about blood and blood products. Um, you know, yeah. it does state specifically it must be administered by physicians or registered nurses. I, I mean, of our 60-some-odd clients, I don't think a single one actually... Uh, allows blood and blood products. Mm-hmm. But make sure uh, if you are like the you know all of our clients, make sure you do have a policy that says that you're not that going you to administer that. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the interpretive guidelines. So as we read in the condition for coverage, uh, drugs and biologicals must be provided in a safe and effective manner, consistent with generally accepted professional standards of pharmaceutical practice uh, and with the requirements specified in the standards within this condition. So what we're talking about here is, you know, making sure that we uh, follow, you know, the, the different standards in the industry or the different, you know, for example, USP 797, USP 800, you know, are, you know, created by uh, organizations that are, are are understood or accepted as the uh, professional standards of the industry. The first one is that the ASC must designate a, sp- a specific licensed healthcare professional to provide direction to the ASC's pharmaceutical service. And that person must be routinely present when the ASC is open for business, but continuous presence is not required. Now, this is not the pharmacy consultant. Um, we've seen situations where they've employed a pharmacist that would usually be in hospital ventures. And usually the medical director or whoever's license is used to purchase the drugs um, will be this person. And some states do allow the center to have a license, but not many. So let's talk a little bit about that last bullet there. You know, some states do allow the center to have a license, but not many, which means that in most states, one of the physician's license is used to purchase all of mm-hmm. the drugs. The DEA license. The right? DEA license, mm-hmm. thanks. Uh, and in other states, you have your own DEA license. So just recognize, <laughs> and you need to make sure that that license is posted. Now, it doesn't need to be posted in public, but it needs to be, usually what we do is we post it inside where the drugs are stored or where okay. the major parts of the major uh, supply of drugs are stored. Uh, there is a requirement for posting, but it doesn't need to be posted in public. It just needs to be mm-hmm. available, you know, for anybody that, uh, that uh, accesses those drugs. And ideally, the ASC should have available a pharmacist who provides oversight or consultation on the ASC's pharmaceutical services, but this is not required by the regulation unless the ASC is performing activities under which state law may only be performed 
by a licensed pharmacist. So there are quite a number of states that do require that you mm -hmm. have a pharmacy consultant. Um, and so in those states, you absolutely have to have that pharmacy yep. consultant. Sometimes they require frequency. Sometimes they don't. You know, so you and I, some of our best friends are our pharmacy consultants. And indeed, we uh, were interviewing one at the end of the segment. And therefore, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we really believe that mm -hmm. a pharmacy consultant is a, is a very valuable uh, person to have on your on your team. So if yes. you uh, if you can afford it and and uh, understand as we do uh, the importance of having that, you know, certainly go out and search for for somebody. But again, most states or many states do require you to have it. Mm -hmm. So moving on with the interpretive guidelines, drugs and biologicals used within the ASC must be administered to patients in accordance with formal policies the ASC has adopted. And those policies and the ASC's actual practices must conform to acceptable standards of practice for medication administration. And when we're talking about accepted professional practice and acceptable standards of practice, it means that the drugs and biologicals are handled and provided in the ASC in accordance with the various applicable state and federal laws, of course, as well as the standards established by organizations with nationally recognized expertise in clinical use of drugs and biologicals. So those would include organizations such as the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy, uh, the Institute for safe medication practice, uh, and the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, etc. The ASC must have policies and procedures designed to promote medication administration consistent with acceptable standards of practice. The policies and procedures should address issues including, but not limited to. So a physician or a qualified member of the medical staff acting within their scope of practice must issue an order for all drugs or biologicals administered in the ASC, kind of emphasis on all drugs or biologicals. And the administration of drugs or biologicals must be by or under the supervision of of nursing or other personnel in accordance with applicable laws, standards of practice, and ASC's policy. So this would be particularly applicable if you have like an LPN in your organization. Make sure that mm -hmm. you're working within your standards of practice. You know, and that brings up an interesting point, Sue, is that we often have to refer back to the standards of practice for the various professions. Mm -hmm. Really, it's a good idea for you to, um, you know, as soon as you're done listening to this uh, podcast to uh, – to make sure that you have a copy of the scope of practice for all of the practitioners that you have in your organization. And of course, you need to follow the manufacturer's ins uh, instructions or label, including storing drugs and biologicals as directed in those instructions, disposing of expired medications in a timely manner, using single dose vials of medication for one ASC patient only, et cetera. And you want to avoid preparation of medications too far in advance of their use. For example, while it may appear efficient to pre-draw the evening before all medications that will be used for surgery scheduled the following day, this practice may, depending on the particular drug or biological, promote loss of integrity, stability, or security of the medication. So, I yeah, we have to... it just wasn't even... <laughs> Yeah, so oh, wow. we have to remember that USP 797 requires, you know, medications to be drawn up no more than one hour before the use. And this is a frequent issue that we've been running into. Yeah. Um, and uh, even I did a survey recently where, indeed, they uh, they did not know this rule. Mm -hmm. and, and, indeed, the organization actually had a policy that said that they could use it up to four hours beforehand. But, interestingly, they didn't know their own policy. So uh, <laughs> they were holding it for more than four hours. When they look back at their policy, they realized they shouldn't use it for more mm -hmm. than four hours. And the actual regulation at this point or the U.S. – the standard, the 
USB 797 only allows it to be one hour. Now, I need to point out that there is a proposed change to USB 797, which will increase the time frame that you can draw up. In other words, how long you can uh, mm-hmm. go before you have to dispose of it uh, to four hours. But that is not in place yet. Uh, I it may not still... be. I don't know that it, there's not a date for it to be implemented. That's it's just, correct. It's just proposed right now. Yeah. So that is important to know. So let's say that again. USP mm-hmm. 797 requires you, if you're going to be using a multi-dose vial, uh, it has to be drawn up no more than one hour before its use. And and uh, we've mentioned this before, but again, it needs to be stated again. If you're drawing up any medication from a multi-dose vial, it cannot be in the patient care area unless you're only using it on that one patient. Uh, so it needs to be done in a neutral area where there are, mm-hmm. no, uh, there, mm-hmm. there are no patients. So again, that is another frequent uh, citation that we're finding now. So and that's one of the reasons that actually mm-hmm. uh, I decided we needed to do this episode again because yeah. it's – it happens uh, when we're doing mock surveys. I find it when I'm doing surveys, uh, we really need to emphasize that multi-dose medications, if they're drawn up and used as a multi-dose file, it has to be outside of a patient care area. Yeah. Otherwise, it is just it has to be considered a, a single single dose. Single right. dose. So if if you have no option but to draw it up in the patient care area, that's fine. But Throw but it, it has to just be that yeah. one patient. Um, And any pre-filled syringes must be initialed by the person who draws it up, dated and timed to indicate when they were drawn up, and labeled as to both the content and the expiration date. And that, again, is another frequent citation Mm -hmm. that we get. Mm -hmm. And I guess we need to point out that when you draw that up, if you lay it down, even for a second, that is considered not immediate use and you Mm -hmm. have to to, uh, to do this. So only if you are going to immediately use it and it doesn't leave your hands. Are you not required to uh, to label it? And employing standard infection control practices when using injectable medications. What's that course. term? Scrub the hub, right? And and wipe the top of the mm-hmm. the vial with uh, with an alcohol uh, prep before you uh, put the needle into it. Yep. And there must be records of receipt and disposition of drugs listed in uh, the in Schedules 2, 3, 4, and 5 of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970 uh, if the ASC uses any such scheduled drugs. And the ASC's policies and procedures should also address the following. Accountability procedures to ensure control of the distribution, use, and disposition of all scheduled drugs. Records of the receipt and disposition of all scheduled drugs must be current and must be accurate. Records to trace the movement of the scheduled drugs throughout the ASC. And the licensed healthcare professional who has been designated responsible for the ASC's pharmaceutical services is responsible for determining that all drug records are in order and that an account of all drug uh, scheduled drugs is maintained and reconciled. Like, by the way, I wonder how many people, how many physicians actually know that they are the, uh, the, responsible. Uh, the person mm-hmm. responsible. The record system delineated in policies and procedures tracks movement of all scheduled drugs from the point of entry into the ASC to the point of departure, either through administration to the patient, destruction, or return to the manufacturer. This system provides documentation on scheduled drugs in a readily retrievable manner to facilitate reconciliation of the receipt and disposition of all scheduled drugs. And this is a frequent problem that we find is Mm -hmm. that your records might be getting sloppy. uh, You might not be getting the proper signatures on all of those records. So really, you need to, to, you know, uh, again, after you finish listening to this podcast, go and double check to make sure all of your records are in order. And all drug, drug records are in order and an account of all scheduled drugs is maintained and any discrepancies in count are reconciled promptly. And the ASC system is capable of readily identifying loss or diversion of all controlled substances in such a manner as to minimize the time frame between the actual loss or diversion 
to the time of detection and determination of the extent of loss or diversion. And we really should point out that if you do have any of these exceptions, you've got an incident report that mm-hmm. you're going to have to mm-hmm. investigate. So moving on to uh, you know the the, the other uh, standard, which is orders uh, given orally for drugs and biologicals must be followed by a written order or signed and signed by the prescribing physician. So orders for drugs and biologicals that are transmitted as oral spoken communications between the prescribing physician and the ASC's nursing staff delivered either face to face or via telephone, commonly called verbal orders, must be followed by a written order that is signed by the prescribing physician. CMS expects ASC policies and procedures for verbal orders to include a readback and verification Mm -hmm. process whereby the nurse receiving the order repeats it back to the prescribing physician who verifies that it is correct. And when administering a drug or biological per a verbal order, the nurse should include in the medical record entry covering the administration of the drug or biological a note that it was prescribed orally, indicating the name of the prescribing physician. The prescribing physician must sign, date, and time the written order in the patient's medical record confirming the verbal order. This should be done as soon as possible after the verbal order is issued. And in the ASC setting, medications prescribed for patients in recovery present a particular area of vulnerability in terms of the potential failure or follow-up a verbal order with a written order signed by the prescribing physician, just because things move so quickly in those organizations. And careful attention must be given to compliance with the regulatory requirement for medications administered uh, during the recovery time. So, you know, what we've talked about a little bit here is that drug diversion is now becoming one of the major issues mm-hmm. in pharmaceutical services and healthcare, and an ASCs are certainly not immune to it at all. In September 2021, that's how far behind we are, Sue. Yeah. In September 2021, New York State Association of ASCs Conference in Cherrytown, we had an opportunity to interview uh, John Karwalski, uh, who is a pharmacy consultant. He's got an RPH, an MBA, and he's with JDJ Consulting Services. Uh, and he was one of the speakers uh, about current issues, and he spoke specifically about the issue of drug diversion. So let's uh, listen to that interview now. This is John Gailey and Sue Cronkite, and we are here at the New York State Association meeting, and we're meeting with uh, John Karwalski, who is with uh, JDJ Consulting. John, you just finished a session on drug diversion, and we thought we'd drag you in here and talk a little bit about some, you know, pharmacy issues in general, but uh, certainly uh, diversion is a big topic right now. So uh, tell us a little bit about your presentation. Sure. Thanks, John. Thanks, Sue, for um having me come in. Uh, the, the session went really well. Um, over the years, JDJ Consulting has uh, provided a lot of guidance in drug security, uh, drug diversion prevention. Um, I've recently celebrated our 20th year servicing ger- uh, surgical centers throughout the Mid-Atlantic states and do a lot of education. I really think the thing that I see the most beneficial is getting to the staff and the clinical staff, letting them understand what diversion can lead to and the ways that we could identify risks of diversion in a facility and how we can improve upon the security of drugs. Because the bottom line is going to lead to possible harm to a patient mm-hmm. because of an impaired employee or a drug product that has been altered or tampered. And, um, you know, that's that's the focus of today. I think uh, it's a good message that we all want to share with all of our clinical sites. Mm-hmm. So you, you presented a number of tools. Uh, what do you think is probably the most effective way and perhaps what tool that you might use in order to stop diversion or prevent, prevent uh, diversion? 
Well, uh, if I wanted to be selfish, I would offer my our uh, drug diversion <laughs> uh, risk analysis, uh, which has been performed in, in a, a, a numerous centers that were worried about their their security systems. But I think on site, it really has to stop start with leadership and commitment by by the uh, leadership in allowing the facility to use best practices when it comes to drug security. And that even might be entering uh, the secure areas with a certain type of badge clearance Mm -hmm. or fingerprint clearance instead of just a key or just propping the door open. It might mean technology as far as uh, video surveillance. It might mean uh, the type of cabinets we're using. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it really is a lot about education of the staff and letting them identify risks and report risks or red flags with anything that they feel is a, is a danger to their patients. And I know one thing you pointed out is for the staff to, I don't want to say be suspicious of each other, but, you know, you get so close, I think, working closely with people, and you just don't ever expect that somebody that is a coworker might be diverting drugs. But if there's something going on, if there's an addiction mm-hmm. and illness, then, you know, it, it can happen. So really knowing those signs and, and being willing to bring it up in a private way with, with your leadership is is important. You're absolutely correct, Sue. No one really wants to think that they're, a fellow worker is is a problem or they they work with side by side with people and they're their colleagues uh it's hard to have someone go report somebody but i think the message in healthcare is so important that our patients coming in for a routine procedure with the possibility of getting harmed is what we in healthcare, we need to be patients advocates. And it's like I say, if your mother or father were coming into this surgery center and you had a suspicion that maybe someone might not be in their best uh, uh, position to treat or maybe even think they might be impaired Mm -hmm. or there's risks of drugs safety in your building, you'd want to report it. So that's the message we try to put out there. Yeah, and having the strength to, if somebody comes to you at the end of the day and wants you to sign off, like you had mentioned on some drug waste and you hadn't seen it, but they say, well, you know, I I just... Trust me. You know, I just did it, and, you know, I'm in a hurry. Now could you sign for this? You you just can't do that. You're taking that responsibility. And that's a great example of a small little component that people don't realize could put you in a situation Mm -hmm. where someone might be trying to divert. So we start with the nurses in, in letting them be educated on what their license allows them to do. Watch that wasted in front of you, mm-hmm. and you have the right to tell your manager if someone came to you asking for your signature when you didn't see the waste. And as you guys know, working in these centers, our nurses are our best guidance because yeah. they, they're they there in the pits every day mm-hmm. working for the safety of the patient. And the leadership has to empower the nurse to by responding if they come and really being that backup to talk to the physicians or the anesthesiologists. And that was another point you made. I know that, that you've had anesthesiologists that are not maybe wasting the drugs appropriately and they don't even know what that drug RX, drug buster, <laughs> what that's <laughs> I thought for. thought it was a because, cleaning agent. Yeah, yeah because yeah. maybe they're, yeah. you know, they're a contracted group and each person that comes in, though, has to be educated on, on the policies of the center. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I wasn't even thinking of things of that nature until I started asking questions and mm-hmm. hearing things that contracted services were doing incorrectly. And it gets you back to, hey, Everybody in a facility caring for a patient should go through the same type of in-servicing and training. They could say they weren't told about it, but again, 
let's get that message out, not only to your employees, but anybody that's caring for the patient. And that would mean our, our contracted anesthesia services. And then, as you said, have support of management and upper management mm-hmm. back you when you challenge somebody. Yeah. Our pharmacists, when I was a director of pharmacy, were always empowered to challenge a physician or a physician order because they knew I had their back. And mm-hmm. we did it with policies. We weren't just rebels out there saying, oh, I didn't like this way. Yeah. But it was really it was not appropriate or didn't follow compliance of a, of a regulation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that empowerment and the backing of the empowerment is what will bring success to the center. What do you think um, some of the most powerful tools that you have in your arsenal to try to determine, you know, if, there, if there's a situation, um, you know, that our, our centers can be using? Hmm. Great question. Um, I think as I, I went through the slides, uh, it really starts with a commitment from your clinical leaders, Mm -hmm. your director of nursing is really a key in establishing uh, the standards and the commitment of her nurses. I've seen greatly run facilities and I've seen not so perfect run Mm -hmm. facilities. And it really is the, the leadership of the nursing director. Some of the tools that are available is is making sure that uh, when something occurs that's not looking right, they have a policy that they can react quickly to. I talked about a diversion risk policy that mm-hmm. a manager can start an action right away without having risks of doing things incorrectly and, and possibly falling into a human resource problem. Mm-hmm. But then tools when you have issues pop up, whether it's identified by nursing or maybe the consultant pharmacist, is it could be easily turned into a QI project. Mm-hmm. that can lead into improvement. And, you know, people don't want to do QI because it's difficult, but we've established some very simple daily yes and no checks that can identify non-compliant individuals mm-hmm. within a work team where all the individuals are doing great, but maybe one or two are falling out based on this standardization of, of, of looking at systems through mm-hmm. an audit. So I would like to really say our nursing directors have that opportunity to use that in a way that, in, and in areas that might be um, uh, problem areas. Well, and that brings up one of uh, my pet peeves, and that is making sure that when we hire nurse managers, we hire nurse managers that are going to be willing to stand up to the doctors. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we knew, know immediate action has to be taken, and that there are kind and gentle ways that we can do this um, without making a huge scene. Have you seen any good examples of that in your time? You know, because of course you're often you have to, you, you identify things that need to be taken care of right away. It's not even something that can wait until the next day or a quality improvement meeting. I could tell you that you can see different personalities when it comes to conflict mm-hmm. and when a nurse has to, or the, the nurse manager or clinical nurse director has to intervene with the anesthesia group or, mm-hmm. uh, and, and some, um, right up front have that ability to, to negotiate or to discuss. I've seen some take a role which is real hard sell and it backs anesthesia off or the medical staff off right away. Mm-hmm. And as we know in healthcare, doctors listen to doctors, mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. doctors and nurses, that interaction might not move things forward. So it's tough. I don't have a clear example of a strength or a weakness, mm-hmm. but we know the dynamics are certainly really important to to, to change processes if we mm-hmm. really have a bad situation. I always tell nursing directors to keep the leadership well-informed and have them back them mm-hmm. in case they get into a situation where they, they've created some turmoil. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, um, yeah, that documentation, like I said, if there is something that you're 
working toward making sure everybody's aware of it and that you're documenting any steps you've taken to correct the problem. And then you've mentioned a lot of stuff about um, education. And that's the other thing, I think, too. If people are all educated to know the signs so that they can go talk to somebody if, if they're seeing a problem. Mm. And also, even knowing what you do, if you do uncover a problem with someone, because even the person listening might be one of the ones that's diverting and, and you want them to know, can they go to you? Can they get treatment? Can they, you know, what is going to happen? And, and you, know, you know, the more so people know. Over the years, um, I really have seen myself turn into more of an educator mm-hmm. for nurses and doctors and anesthesiologists more than ever in my life in, in healthcare. It's been trying to best let them be knowledgeable of a regulation change mm-hmm. or a security gap in their system and, and try to help a nurse manager that maybe doesn't know the steps to take to, to, and with my experience, and you guys know this, your experience is, is, is vast and little things that we've learned throughout the years, these individuals, they don't know what they don't know sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And our assistance really, I think, you know, John and I were talking a lot about maybe Providing programs that could mm-hmm. really focus on the development of a, of a manager in a, in a facility that mm-hmm. takes them to the next level of confidence, of yeah. staffing, uh, uh, improvements and interactions with, with, uh, you know, our, our medical staff. John, it's been a pleasure having you. We are definitely going to bring you back because I think there's so much to talk about. And I think pharmacy is one of those areas that we were, we were, we've been focused on in the past. But I think that as we move forward, I think we're going to bring you back and talk a couple of, a uh, couple of other topics very soon. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I think that what I've seen over the years is my clients really, um, appreciate what we bring to mm-hmm. their service mm-hmm. because a pharmacist sometimes sees things in a different manner when it comes to medication management mm-hmm. and drug mm-hmm. safety that nurses weren't taught and doctors weren't taught. Yeah. And and that teamwork is is what our successful facilities are, mm-hmm. are moving towards. So thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. See you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff. So uh, the upcoming topics uh, within the next uh, month are an interview with Scott Megason uh, regarding what to do when your coding or billing staffs leave suddenly. And a focus segment on the ASC quality reporting and the changes in 2022. We better get that out pretty soon before, yes, before everybody's required to, to, to report. Uh, an annual view, we'll do our annual review of the OIG report on the compliance of accrediting organizations with the conditions for coverage during surveys. And then uh, we, we did have a request from, as I mentioned in our first segment, our patrons to do an episode on uh, succession planning. So we'll try to schedule that within the next couple months. And some of the upcoming training programs include the Administrators Boot Camp, which is a virtual training program for new administrators and administrators that are preparing to take the CASC exam. Uh, the program includes weekly voluntary drop-in sessions, uh, mentoring sessions with John and other staff from AHS, access to a huge database of information, and a comprehensive four-day virtual training program. The next live program is February 1st through the 4th, 2022. It's coming up in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also a self-paced version available um, at ASCPodcast.com. If you can't uh, dedicate those four days. And even if you do dedicate those four days, you Mm -hmm. know, there's a full recording and you have access to the recording. Yeah, we understand a lot of people can't 
promise they'll be be there for the whole thing. You right. get called away for work and things, so you can be live and asking questions when you can, and then watch the rest in the recording. And the New Jersey ASC Association uh, virtual conference is one twenty six twenty two. And Ann Geyer will be speaking there. And John, you were going to do a podcast from there, but now that it's gone virtual, I think I don't think so. That won't yeah, so we ha- we haven't figured that one out yet. That happened so suddenly, and I mm-hmm. uh, kind of uh, they were very disappointed that they yeah. had to go virtual there, and I we feel bad for them. But uh, in uh, June, June seventh and eighth, they are going to have um, their annual conference. They expect it to be live at the Hilton East Brunswick, and I'll be I'll be speaking there on succession planning. And ASCA 2022 will be in Dallas, Texas, April 27th through the 30th. John will be speaking in a special track for new ASC administrators. And for more information, go to ASCAssociation.org. And also, please don't forget about our recorded events, which are all available at ASCPodcast.com. We have a a conference on uh, credentialing, which we recorded in uh, 2020, Uh, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, which is a good introduction to finance and accounting. And we also talked about the 2022 payment rules there. Uh, and then the Conditions for Coverage Conference, which we recorded in, uh, I think it was November 2021, which is a great introduction, a full-day conference introduction to the Conditions for Coverage. And in September, we did a Medical Director Conference, which we're going to be following up on, uh, which is just a great, I think it was about a six-hour conference, which uh, might be useful for your for your medical directors. If you are a uh, member uh, or a patron member of the podcast, you get access to the Conditions for Coverage Conference and the Medical Director Conference for no charge. And we do want to remind everyone to consider becoming a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for business administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, discounts on services, uh, on books, and access to AEU credits. And uh, almost every week we have a drop-in session. Right now it's usually on Saturday mornings about 10 a.m., which you have an opportunity to sit in the comfort of your own home and talk to us. And we've really started – I mean, we've always enjoyed it, but lately it's been really some great uh, great discussions. And Sue, I sometimes think it's like a therapy session too for all of us where we, we, we kind of talk about all the challenges that we're having. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we're also going to be doing some study sessions for people studying for the CASC and CAPE exam. Membership helps defray the costs of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel costs to conferences when we're able to do that again, mm-hmm. equipment costs, and the production costs. So for more information, visit asc-central.com or ascpodcast.com. And that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. I think we're at 298 subscribers right now, so we need two more to get over that 300 <laughs> uh, point. Uh, the sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. 
This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.